Let's take our Bibles and go I'm not sure where. Okay, if you want to jump with me to several passages, some of the first that we're going to be looking at, we'll be at 1 John. That might be the best one to start with, 1 John chapter 5. We're going to do a lot of different passages. And the reason being is I wanted to follow up what we talked about this morning. This morning we made this point that there are sometimes that believers are challenged. They're not sure if I'm really saved. How do I know I'm really saved? And then goes right along with that is this idea that there's people, some of us who have struggled, that said, am I going to keep being saved? I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but maybe I'm not living up to the standard God wants, therefore maybe he's going to take it away from me. And for some of you, that's been a battle, those types of things. For me, for my wife, <clears throat> we had the op- after this morning service, I had several people come up and said, that was exactly where I'm struggling with. That's something that, that I've been dealing with. Why is it that so many believers, we have questions, we struggle, but this idea of, are we really saved? I, I, it, you know, is God keeping me saved? There are several reasons in the scriptures that this happens. Okay, One of the reasons is that there are people who are teaching that you can never know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. You're in First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verse 13, what does he write in this? I write unto you, he says, with that idea that I want you to know what? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But there are some churches that are teaching some groups that you can never know. I grew up in one of those that said that nobody can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. So when I come to a church like this and I get exposed to the Word of God, I was trained all my life that up to that point you can never know. Nobody can know. Nobody can know. And that was a real battle getting over that hump of, well, wait a minute, this is just my mindset for years and all of a sudden somebody's telling me different. But there are groups that are teaching you cannot know for sure. And then there are groups that are teaching this. There are groups that are teaching, even in our community and close to us, that are teaching, if you get saved, God might at some time become upset with you. You might displease him. You might do some sin. And that sin or sins, God's going to repeal. He's going to take back his salvation and reject you. And so there's some groups that teach that, that if you don't wear certain clothing or if you drink certain things like that, wicked coffee, you know, then you're going to end up losing your salvation or et cetera, et cetera, whatever they want to put in there. Then there are those individuals, <clears throat> like some here, that you are extremely sensitive to spiritual things. And then what happens is, because of your sensitivity, your consciousness about not wanting to offend the Lord when you do it, you feel so guilty. You feel so terrible. You feel awful that you have offended the Christ who has died for you, who rose for you, who loved you so very much. And you come to the point that you say, I'm not worthy of salvation. I still do some bad stuff. And the reality is, we aren't worthy of his salvation. That is a truism. But because of our guilt, we struggle with that. And then there's another reason that some people will struggle with, how do we know we are really saved? How do we know if God won't take it back? Because there are some passages in Scripture. There are several select passages in Scripture that may suggest that, if you come from that point of view. Most of them have a double different, a double meaning. They could be referring to chastisement, or some interpret that, that that isn't chastisement, it is taking back salvation. And some of those passages that cause that confusion, taken in and of themselves, are passages like this. 
He says, I keep under my body trying to keep myself under control lest I be a castaway. And there are some folk who run with that phrase, lest I be a castaway, to say, see, there's a possibility. God might cast you off. There is a passage that some use, repent or else I will come, and remove your candlestick out of the place. That's threatening. God's saying he might remove you from salvation. Even in the book of Revelation, where he makes this comment at the end, that if you fool with the word of God, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. See, that verse some say, well, that verse is saying God could erase you from the book of life. And nobody who has their name taken out of the book of life can enter into heaven. Then there are verses like this. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for our sins. So if you willfully disobey God, knowingly as a child of God, there's no covering of your sin. His work is invalidated at that point. Peter says this, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior of Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein in the things of the world, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Some teach them that that means you're going to lose your salvation. And then you have a few select parables. You have a parable like the one we talked about a few weeks ago, Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, remember, it's the story of the man who has such an incredible debt that it's beyond his, his ability to pay it back. What does the Lord, the Master, do to this man when he says, please, please forgive me? He forgives him how much of the debt? All of the debt. Then what does the man go out and do? Somebody owes him far less, and what does he fail to do? He will not forgive him. Now, some will jump on that text and say, then follow what happens. When the master hears that the one he forgave will not forgive others, then the master punishes him, and here's the passage. The Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors. Obviously, the tormentors has to be referring to... Satan, to the demons. And so likewise shall your heavenly Father do also to you if you from your hearts do not forgive everyone. So if you have bitterness in your heart, God could take back what he gave you for that forgiveness and deliver you for the tormentors. In other words, you're going to go to hell. And it's taken out of this text, which is one of those, one of those passages that where Micah is ministering in that area, this is one of those strongly promoted passages interpreted that way. There's another one that they deal with. It's the parable of the pounds in Luke 19. Remember, the master is going to go on a journey, so he leaves different servants ten pounds. Each of them have the same opportunity, the same responsibility. And when the master comes back, the first man, do you remember what he did with his ten pounds? Now, the first one. He invested, he profited so that he made, made the 10 pounds become 10 more pounds. The second man, the story says, he did the similar thing, but he had only reaped back five pounds. The third man in the story, the third man said, well, I knew that you are you know, really a demanding leader, so what did I do with the money? I buried it. I did nothing. And in the story, in the account, it goes on, says, I say unto you that unto every one which has shall be given, and from him that has not, even that he had, shall be taken away from him. The idea is 
you might lose your salvation. You might be one if you don't live faithfully. God might take what he gave you back and give it to somebody else. And they apply that to your salvation. John chapter 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me you can do nothing. Okay, you know that passage. Well, in that passage, he says, every branch in me that bears not fruit, what is the, far, far, the father farmer going to do? He's going to take it away. And in verse 6, it makes this statement, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And the men gather and cast them into fire and they are burned. And the, the interpretation that some say, well, you had to be in Christ at one point to be a branch. Therefore, what he's saying is if you don't bear fruit, he's going to take you away from Christ, cast you aside, and you're going to be burned. That obviously refers to hell. And so you have churches, churches teaching this that are propagating those types of uh, ideas, and they aren't coming, um, coming up with those ideas from just imagining sitting around. They're finding some verses that they are saying interpret this way. And so here's the question that, that it's a theological, it's a, it's a Bible study question. What do you do when there are some passages <clears throat> that might be interpreted this way or might be interpreted that way? What do you do? How do we approach that? A good rule of thumb when studying the Bible in a debated doctrine or studies is this, Okay. Find and follow what the preponderance of Bible verses clearly say about the matter. What does the Bible, the, the bulk of the Bible, the, the, the simple, clearest, most obvious verses, what do they teach? And then if there is a verse that is a little bit confusing, or a verse that at times it has a possible one meaning or another, it's got to fit the preponderance of what is clear. Here, let me see if I can illustrate this way. You do not use unclear verses to build doctrine. You just don't do that. You build doctrine on what is very clear. What you do as well is you don't take a double meaning verse. The verse, John, John chapter 15, the vines being and the branches, that could be as some say, it, I don't think it is, but some say it could be the idea of you're going to be removed from salvation and burnt. There's another real, real good possibility. It could be a chastisement verse that you're going to be punished. Not every verse talking about fire refers to hell. I mean, it talks in First Peter about you going through fire, fiery trials. That doesn't mean you're going through hell. So the idea when there are verses that, that could be talking about the idea of, of let's, we're taking salvation here, um, when we're talking about eternal security, if it could be chastisement or it could be eternal, or, uh, chastisement or loss of salvation, what does the preponderance of Scripture already say? It is especially a problem when people develop doctrine out of parables. When you see little nuances in illustrations and parables and develop your doctrine from that. But that's a problem. Here, here's, if I can illustrate this way. You're, Jesus is giving a, a parable that men ought to pray always. 
And he says that there's a man who has a visitor come to his house, and this visitor comes in the middle of the night, uh, visitors to his house, but he doesn't have anything to feed him. So he goes to his neighbor, knocks on the door, and asks his neighbor if he can borrow food to feed his visitors that came in the middle of the night. But the man who is in the house, what's his first reaction? I'm in bed. Go home. You know, leave me alone. Should we develop this doctrine that God is hesitant and reluctant to answer your prayers based upon that little part of the story? No. In fact, what does he say about what what this man gets his answer by doing what? He's persistent. That's the point of the parable. The major point of the parable is persistent. But don't take and try to identify every little nuance. There's the woman who has a need. And there's an unjust judge that she has to go to. The unjust judge doesn't want to answer her prayers. What does he want from this widow woman? He wants a bribe. But she persists until that judge answers. What's his point? His point is persistent. He isn't implying, he isn't at all teaching, don't develop a doctrine that God is unjust that God is reluctant to pray, that you have to barter and bargain with God. You are taking one little part of the story and trying to build a doctrine out of it, and that's dangerous. So when people do that with the illustrations that Christ gave, that's a real big problem. Jesus, when he was talking in Matthew 18, was not talking about your salvation being secure or unsecured. He was talking about you need to be willing to forgive others. Period. That's the illustration. Be careful. And what, what should you be willing to forgive them of? You know, of everything. Why? Because you have been forgiven. That, that's his point. That's his point. And so we don't want to get caught up in some of the little details of the story and try to make them into a whole new doctrine. And so the point that we have is, okay, where we're starting tonight is, what is the preponderance of Scripture say? What is the bulk of New Testament teaching? As you read it through, we understand, we grant that there are some verses that are difficult to understand. We know that. But what does the bulk of Scripture, what is the clarity of the Scripture? And I suggest to you, without, without any hesitancy, that the bulk of Scripture teaches when it comes to salvation that once you are saved, you are saved forever. Eternal security, assurance of salvation. And taking all of these multiple different thoughts from or verses and putting them together, I want to just kind of bring them down into 12 or 13 simple statements that are all backed up by this preponderance of Scripture. And so give me, let me give you statement number one that deals with this idea of eternal security, that once saved, always saved. This idea that if you are truly a born-again child of God, you are going to remain as a child of God. This, this thought, the Bible clearly teaches salvation is something done for us, not by us. Okay, it is a work of God's grace. Let me ask you to define what is grace. What is grace? When, when somebody says to you, the grace of God, what comes to your mind? Okay, God giving us something we don't deserve. 
That's grace. God giving to us. What's mercy? What's that? God withholding something we do deserve. They're the same thing, but they're on two different sides of the coin. So mercy is God withholding what you and I do deserve. Grace is God giving us something that we, do, that we don't deserve. And so we're going to be focusing on this idea of grace. God gave us something that we don't deserve. What is the gift that God has given? Watch what Scripture says. Okay? God says very salvation. Uh, God says very clearly that our salvation is a work of God's grace being justified by his grace. We have redemption according to his grace. By grace are you saved. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. The Lord himself, Jesus Christ, loved us. He gave us the consolation, good hope, through grace. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, Christ died in vain. You're not under law. You're under grace. Not by the works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Very clearly, Salvation is tied to God's grace. Let's build that a little bit more, okay? Where we make this observation. Grace is not something we deserve, that we merit. This, this is so simple. You, you know this. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to bore you, but I'm trying to build up a thought here. Okay? But you understand this. We don't deserve grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So clear. You, you use this verse all the time when you're sharing the gospel. Let me add a couple of things. Where it says in this, where it says, um, for by grace are you saved? Just for your information, that phrase, it is you were saved and you continue and will continue to be saved. It's what we call a perfect passive verb. The perfect means, just to illustrate, I was married on June 10th of 19... You got the date. Very good. Okay, 1978. Does that mean I was only married then? It continues. Okay, I was married on such a date. I'm using it in the perfect sense. And it was, I got married at that date, and it is still, it's still valid. It's still going on. That's the perfect. I got saved in May of 1973. That saved in this verse means that happened then, but it continues on. And not only is it called a perfect verb, but the passive means what? It wasn't me. It was done to me, not by me. Okay? And so the idea is it still continues, but it, it came from outside of me. That's true of you. You were saved, put your date in, and it wasn't something that you did to make yourself saved. You called upon God, and God did the saving work. And it was done by grace, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, renewing. You and I didn't do the washing. We didn't have the work of the Holy Spirit. We didn't create that. It's a work of God, period. Our salvation is totally dependent upon God. And it comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through you or me or our, our perseverance. Salvation comes through Jesus by God's grace. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, as in Adam, there's all the offenses. The gift of grace is by one man. 
Okay, Jesus Christ. There is one God, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. You know this. You understand this. This is going over ABCs of Christianity, but think it through. If you are suggesting and doubting of whether or not you have are saved, maybe you're doubting, well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I haven't been as pleasing to God to keep myself saved. Do you understand what you're doing? You're adding to your salvation your own good works to keeping you there. The Bible says, by what are we saved? By grace. It's a gift of God. It is simply on our part, and probably I should have more theologically correct added, what we need to do is repent and have faith. But I put up here faith only. The, by faith, he says, by faith we enter the grace. Through faith, we believe in him. Whosoever believes in him. The whole idea is everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness. It doesn't say believe and wear certain colored clothing. Believe and keep themselves from saying certain words. Believe in him plus you have to attend church X amount of times during the year. If we add something to it, what have we done? We have reduced the grace to our own works. So we bring that simple thought. And this is just your first of multiple thoughts, and you can see we're not going to get through them all. The question, how does this all apply to eternal security? None of us needs to worry or wonder if we are good enough or if we are doing enough to keep our salvation. Because if this is the question, if the question is, are you good enough to keep on being saved, or have you done enough to keep your salvation, what's the answer? No. None of us are that good. None, even, though we're, even though we call ourselves Christians, we attempt, you know, what do we still have within us? Sin. Okay, so it's not an issue uh, depending upon us. Our salvation doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon Jesus Christ, his grace. Human efforts never got us saved. And this is what Paul was writing to the Galatians about. They had false teachers coming in and saying, well, you need to believe in Jesus, plus you need to keep the feast days. You need to follow the law. You need to eat certain foods and dietary things. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you now are made complete through the works of the flesh? He finishes off, he says, I say unto you that if you are requiring and saying that following the law, being circumcised, for instance, or the feast days, if that is going to be your criteria for salvation, Christ profits you nothing. So our first most basic thought is simply this, okay? Salvation comes by grace. To teach anything different is to teach another gospel. And he says, anathema to those who would teach another gospel, that it's Christ plus something we can do. In fact, let me take it and and wrap this one up this way. None of us need to worry or wonder if we can, if we might out-sin the grace of God. Maybe I'll do something so bad that grace will no longer cover it. Do you have a Bible verse to answer this? Where sin 
has abounded, grace did much more abound. We cannot out God's grace. It's just an impossibility. The Bible teaches salvation is something done for us and by us. That's the preponderance of Scripture. Okay, but let me, let me take it a little bit further, okay, which is an important truth. The Bible clearly teaches that when you got saved, you were placed in a unique and lasting relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know all the nuances of this. I don't know how, you know, it's just such a profound doctrine that I don't, we're going to study it for all eternity. Let me, let me give you an insight into this. The Bible repeatedly uses the phrase, in Christ, or in Him. Just for your information, it shows up 180 times in the New Testament alone. Primarily in the epistles. That's a lot of references. Okay, that it's talking about it. Paul uses it in his epistles alone 143 of those times. So in Paul's mind, this idea of you being in Christ is something phenomenal, something amazing. It's a major doctrine. It's a major concept. What does it mean to be in Christ? These are some possibilities that you're in him and he's in you. In other words, that idea that you have a unique, intimate relationship with him that is just something that on an earthly aspect... It's beyond what we can possibly describe. But we are tied to Christ. We are in Christ. In other words, when God looks at you, God sees his son in you, surrounding you. So so when God looks at us, he no longer sees our works of unrighteousness, but he sees the works of righteousness, which he has done, being in Christ. You share, because you are in Christ, you even share in some of his virtue. We'll see that in a moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, or 522, where he talks about, he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He shares his righteousness with you. So you possess some of that righteousness, not because of coming to church or because of our good deeds, but because you are in Christ. God sees you as righteous. Amazing. This idea that you also have other blessings. Watch some of the verses, just a few of the verses that talk about. For as in Adam all die, you're in Christ, you're made alive. So therefore is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have that threat over us. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is becoming a new creation. The old things pass away, all things become new. He has made him to be sin for us that we might partake in his righteousness. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He goes on, he talks about that. He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the tense of these verbs? In this passage, what's the tense? It's past tense, but are you in heaven right now? No, folk, I know that you love church, but this isn't heaven, okay? This is not heaven. Why is he using past tense when it hasn't happened yet? Because in God's mind, this is a done deal. You who are in Christ, you already sit in, in, you have a place reserved. It is for you, all the blessings of heaven. How did that come to you? In Christ. In Christ. We are his workmanship, created into good works in Christ. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are in the past far off, you've been made near to him because you're in Christ. 
in Christ is, is the place that you have to be, is in Christ to be entering into heaven. If I can give an illustration that in the Old Testament they had the cities of refuge, that if you did something wrong that you could lose your life for, what could you do? You could run to a city of refuge and stay inside, and as long as you were inside... Yeah, now, now again, we had, there's a, they, they could hold a trial and the trial and seed, you know, because the, the one who was guilty as can be, they couldn't use this as an excuse. But for those where there was an accidental death or there was something, they could run to this city and they would be preserved as long as they were in the city, in Christ. Okay, they were protected. The same thing is used in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about our relationship with Christ like a husband and a wife. And he talks about how in the Jewish ceremonies, they would uh, conduct the ceremony. In the course of the ceremony, what would happen is the groom, who was dressed up fancier than the bride typically, he would take off his raiment, his coat, and he would put over the, the shoulders of his wife. So that everybody standing there, what would they see her covered with? His clothing. She was now see when they looked at her, they were to be seeing him, his protection, his provisions, his his relationship bound her to him so that she was now his, not somebody else's, and he was going to provide, take care of her, all those. She being in him had all the provisions she would need. You being in Christ. You're covered by his righteousness, and God no longer sees your sin, but he sees you covered by him. So how does this all come down to eternal security? Watch the words of Jesus, that if you're in Christ, he has promised you, who are followers of him, I will never leave thee nor what? That lasts for how long? Forever. You're in Christ for... if. Otherwise, otherwise, what you're saying is if I, can, if, if I can lose my salvation, then you're saying Christ will abandon me. Christ will choose to leave me of his own accord. That would be going against his word. He made it very clear. He says, all that the Father gives to me shall come, and I will in no wise, in no way will I cast that person off. Watch what he said in John 6. This is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all the, the people that he's given to me, I should lose, and in the King James, it's nothing. But the idea is clear. It's persons, no person. I should lose no one, no person, but should raise it up again in the last day. That's his promise to us, that as long as we're in him, we stay there forever and ever. We have a unique union. That union is forever and ever and ever. And speaking of that, when you got saved, you got put into God's family. That's, that Bible makes this very clear. That as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. God did the birthing for you. You became his child. Here's a verse. You are all, he writes to Galatians, you are all the sons of God through faith. 
When you got saved through faith and accepted his grace, you became his child. So much so that he says you received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is giving the impression of what? To the believer. What's that telling you? You're really close to him. You have an intimacy with him. You have this uniqueness. I I know of when I was growing up and first saved, um, you know, and we were being trained for the ministry. We had one guy coming and he was telling us that what you need to do is you need to train your kids that your kids call you pastor all the time. You know, so that, you know, they shouldn't call you pastor. And I just, my, my first reaction, are you nuts? I have a unique relationship with four people in this world. They're my kids. I want them to have this comfortableness that they can come to me and call me Abba Dad and have a unique closeness and not this officialdom. And so here's this idea that we have that because we're the children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs with Christ. You, because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit. So you could cry, Abba, Father. We're, we're not servants. We're sons. And if a son, we're a joint heir. We've been adopted by him to the point that he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. That's what Jesus is getting at. And you need to be born again. You need to have this spiritual birth so you become a part of God's family. Now, what does that mean? How does this apply to eternal security? It is the parent-child relationship temporary or permanent? I know that some of you are wishing. Maybe temporary would be good sometimes. Yeah, I could ship them off. I could take them to mail dock, and there they go. Yeah, no, no. My kids are forever going to be my kids. It's a permanent relationship. Now, does it have changes in that relationship? Does it morph in, in how things work out? Yeah, because when my daughters met those guys that they fell in love with, I became as good to them as just a piece of old meat. Okay, those guys, all of a sudden, they were enamored with them. And that's normal, that's good. But they're still my daughters. And that will last. And so we have this idea that the parent-child relationship is permanent. The fellowship might be broken. Now, now these were our kids, okay? You, you folk have, much, have done a much better job than we ever did, I'm sure. But our kids, there was times when they were still our kids, but the fellowship was a little bit tense. There was like, you better go to your room and I better go to my room for a few minutes because something could bad is going to happen here because you've, you've crossed a line. They were still in my house. They're still my kids. But the favor, the friendship, that was severed at times. Did any of you, bless my heart by saying, did you, did you ever have times with your kids that, or are we the only ones in this room? We're the only ones in this room. Okay, okay. The same is true of a believer and his father, okay? A Christian is always God's child, part of the family, but they may lose the favor. That's Hebrews 12. That's what the whole chapter, that section is about. God doesn't chasten those who aren't his kids. Those who don't have chastening for sin, they are called bastards in that verse. And that's why he doesn't have the chastening upon them. They're not his kids. But he whom he loves and who are his children, he will chasten. The fellowship, the favor might be broken, but the relationship is permanent. So the idea here is that when we do wrong, God corrects us. But he doesn't cast us off. He doesn't abandon us. Let me ask you this. 
what would it take for you to disown your child? Something pretty, pretty, pretty big, right? Something pretty severe. And for a lot of you, you're saying, I would never, even if they did that, I would still love them from my perspective. They may reject me, but they're still my child. Then if that's the case, why would you think God, who is a better parent than you, why would you think he would disown you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. If they were truly saved at some point. The cool. But th- that's the, the question they're asking is, were they ever saved? Based on First John, then they're, they're, then they're, then they're going to be a child, they're going to be in heaven. They will be saved yet so as by fire, First Corinthians chapter three, verse 15. Even righteous lot was vexed in the spirit, but he was declared righteous by God, but he was still a saved man. Can a Christian still commit he and his sins? It can happen. Is that the norm? Is that the norm of their lifestyle? No, it's not supposed to be. Um, But if they are a child who did a Peter thing, they deny the Lord three times, are they still God's child? Because God will convict them, God will chasten them and bring them back. And if they don't come back and they're his child, will he discipline them? The answer is yes. And there is... A discipline even unto death. First John chapter five. Okay. Now, you're, the question you're 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 the show that you're putting is is a really good question for that none of us can answer. If I look at somebody standing here and they're living, they they lived for the Lord at one time, but now they're not. How do I put this together? Either it's one of two things: either they never were saved. Or they're saved and they should be under the conviction of the Spirit and they're playing a dangerous game. Which one is it? I don't know. I don't know. But doctrinally, it's one of those two. You know, it, it, there's, there's just no other way around about it scripturally. And when the trumpet sounds for the rapture, I think they go. I have no reason in scriptures to. Uh, oh, I, I have every reason in scripture to say they have to go. In uh, we'll get to it next week. It was supposed to be the last point tonight, but we won't get there. Um, and we'll show you why. But um, you know, they're a child. If you're a child, you're a child. You may be a wayward child. What's that? I'll, you, we can talk afterwards. Let me for the next few minutes. Let me get to as far as I can here. Okay, the Bible repeatedly used the phrase that what God gives us is eternal life. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm boring you in the sense of giving you so much stuff, and, but trying to build a, a case for you to explain to others. So I, I, I hope you're following along well enough. When the scripture says the gift of God is eternal life, how long is eternal? Okay. So we start going, okay, watch all the verses, the preponderance of Scripture. He gives unto us everlasting life. He that hath the Son hath right now everlasting life. Okay, this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that sees the Son and believes may have everlasting life. 
Verily, verily, I say, he that hears my word, believes on me, has, even right now, present tense, everlasting life, and will not come into condemnation. Um, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. We, this is the record that God has given to us. What kind of life? Eternal life, okay? He became the author of eternal salvation. Now, all of these verses that I just used, some is everlasting, some is eternal. It's the same word in the original language. The same word that keeps on showing up is Ionia or Ionian. If we say the Ionian can at times mean for a while. Sometimes it doesn't mean forever and ever in some cases. Then we've got a real problem because God is called an everlasting father. Does that mean everlasting in his case is only temporary? Who else is said to be forever and ever? Jesus Christ. He's forever and ever, same word. Is Jesus, or if we say that forever doesn't mean forever, then it means Jesus has a time limit. God has a time limit. Your salvation, the, the work of Jesus Christ that provided your salvation, his payment on the cross, his death on the cross, how long was that sufficient for? It's called a, it's a forever sacrifice which means it only had to be done once. If we say forever could stop, then what does that mean Jesus Christ has to do for the work of salvation? He has to come and die again. He might have to come die and resupply it. So when you start saying forever doesn't mean forever, it has tremendous domino effect upon God, Jesus Christ, and the work of salvation. Forever means, everlasting means, everlasting. It means it's never going to stop. That you have everlasting life and you have it right now. God is the one, we'll wrap up with this, God is the one who keeps us saved, not us. So my salvation doesn't depend that I go to church a certain amount of time, doesn't depend that I wear certain clothes, doesn't depend that I X, Y, Z. Okay, I don't keep myself saved, ever. Watch these passages. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. We, he is the one that keeps us. Unto him that is able to keep us from, from falling. To say that a person can be lost after being saved is suggesting that God is not capable of keeping us saved. Here, here. If we are to say we've got to keep ourselves in salvation, we've got a real problem. Okay? Peter's able to walk on the water until all of a sudden he's caught up with the things around him and starts sinking. Christ is the one who saves us, not ourselves. There are multiple passages. I'm going to do a little thing with you. Okay? You've got the verse right here, or you can open it in your Bible, okay, and follow along. But here it is. As we read through, I want you to write down or think through. Because the next slide we're going to do this. What does Jesus require in this verse? What does he require? What does he promise? And it's interesting to make this observation as you go through it. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Him that comes to me I will no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will that hath sent me. 
that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone that sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up. Okay? What is required of us, according to this passage? We need to come. Somebody said, we need to come to him. What else? Okay, see and believe. So if we write those down and say, okay, what does he require? We come to him, okay, we see and believe on him. That's it. We come, we see and believe. What does he promise in those verses? He'll not cast us out. Should I go back to that help you if you don't have it in your lap? Okay. What else does he promise? Everlasting life. Not cast us out. What's that? Rise in the last day. If we were to write down everything, here's what you have, okay? I will in no way, way cast him out. Emphatic. He writes the will of the... I'm going to do the will of the Father for that person. This is the will of the Father that sent me. I'm going to carry it out. Okay? I will lose no one given unto me by the Father. I promise I will raise them up in the last day. They will, they will have everlasting life. I myself will raise them up. Based on that passage, those statements are made. Can you lose yourself? Can Jesus Christ lose you? Will he reject you? Not based on his words. Now, here's where I was when Deb and I were in our struggles about being sure. I struggled with my, with my salvation by saying, well, wait a minute. I don't know. Did, he re- did it really work? Did it really work? Did it really work? And somebody sat me down and pointed out something. There are two people working in this passage. And they use Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, so tying it together. There's two people involved in this salvation work. There is you and there is God. Okay? What was your part? Call upon the name of the Lord. Come, see, believe on him. What is God's part? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be... God does the saving, not me. And they asked me this question. Who can do a better... Who can do their part better? You or God? And we also know the answer. So are you questioning whether you called was good enough? And I wasn't. Because I said, I called. I really meant it. I called on him. So who was I doubting? Him and the part he did. I was doubting, would he cast me out? He'd do the will for me. Would he, you know, would he lose me? Would he not raise me up? Would he not give me everlasting life? What a horrible approach to, to God. To question Him and His ability and what He would do. He promises in the passage to keep all believers saved. In John chapter 10, do you remember? I am the shepherd, you are the... Okay, if you come unto me, my sheep do what? They hear my voice and, I, and follow me and I will give unto them... Everlasting life. Okay, here we go. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. How do we prove if we're really... And this goes back, Lachelle, some of what you said. Okay, what we said this morning. How do we know? Was there any time in our life where we were doing this? They hear. They respond. They follow him. They do his bidding. That ties to it. 
then what does he say he's going to do? I will give unto them eternal life. What else does he say? They shall never, never ever perish. What else does he say? No man can pluck you out of his hand. That's his promise. Okay, that's what he's saying to the, to the people. Okay, so you go and then he repeats it again. He says, my father which gave them unto me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out. This is a repetition of what he just said. Why does he do that? Because we were hard of hearing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a spiritual sense. Why did he repeat this? Emphasis. Okay? He says the same thing. He is getting us to focus. It's not us. It's him. Okay? And, and that silly illustration that we do with, with little kids, okay? What would it take for someone to take you out of God's hand? What must that person be like? To take you from God. They got to be bigger than God. They could be stronger than God. They got to be more, whatever word you want to put in there. They've got to overcome God. Who can do that? Nobody. Can Satan overpower God? No. Can you overpower God? No. What's his point? His point is this. We are kept secure by God. If we're secured by God, that's the best bank you've ever gotten. You'll never find more security than in God himself. He is the one that keeps us safe. So when we get into this issue of can I lose my salvation, the real question you should be asking, can God lose you? Can God lose you? I mean, we lose things. Yes? No? Am I the only one in this room that loses things? Okay. I got a text this afternoon. I lost my keys at church. Can you, you know, just see if it's fine? We lose things. We lose kids. We lose, you know, where we laid down my pencil that I've got behind my ear. You know, we forget things. Does God lose us? God is able to keep you. God is willing to keep you. God said, Christ, this is your mission, and it's to keep those that I gave you. It's his responsibility to keep us, therefore. So the bottom line is, God losing us is impossible. Once saved, always saved. Now, does that give us permission to live as we want? No, no. But it gives us security. And Father, I thank you for that security. I thank you so very much that because of your work, you're keeping me saved and these people here. That it's not us, that it's your work of grace that gave us salvation, that keeps us saved, that gets us into heaven. Thank you that we can rely upon you and we don't have to fear our own failures. But we are trusting in a gracious, loving relationship that you have given us that will last forever. Thank you for such mercy and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Okay, I appreciate that. We'll pick up next week with some more of this uh, 12 different statements, okay? Actually, there's more.